0: SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. All right, welcome to another edition of the Conference USA podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for the Group of Five and FCS. Joe Lundrigan and Eric Henry here with you, as always, uh, ready to dive into the action we saw in week two, preview week three, and uh, who knows what else along the way. We're also going to have uh, Sam Doughton, who's the staff writer for Middle Tennessee Athletics, on in a little bit to talk about what, uh, what happened for the Blue Raiders on their recent trip to Fort Collins, Colorado, to take down the CSU Rams there. Uh but first Eric it was a busy week. Um I know you were at the FIU game in San Marcos. Any any interesting travel stories you want to share with us?
1: Um yeah, you know what this one actually was pretty eventful I will say because I um I decided to uh crash with my boy, my good buddy Mr. Stephen Hamner, aka uh, some of our listeners may be familiar with him. He is known as at QB Spotlight on Twitter. Yep. Does a yeah, and of course, uh, you know, Joe, you know him, but does a great job uh, breaking down quarterbacks, specifically a group of five quarterbacks. But he lives in the Austin area, and he is a native Texan, Joe. So you know, he's like, yeah, man, you know, you coming to cover the Texas State game? Just crash with me, and you can save, uh, you know, travel budget, all that stuff, man. Yeah, I'm like, okay, cool. But I, I forgot that, you know, a Joe, um, 45, 50 minutes is like a five minute drive for Texans, you know, like that's nothing for them. Um, <laughs> yeah. so, so it, it was, it was a bit of a, uh, I, I put you this way, the drive from his, from his, excuse me, from his, uh, parents, lake house and lake travis first off lake travis joe beautiful area if you're not Mm. familiar with lake travis you 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 actually are if you're a college football fan you just don't realize it they put out a ton of d1 quarterbacks um i think they had some like 11 d1 quarterbacks signed over the past few years so uh heavy uh football area and a beautiful area but Mm. drove from there to san marcos and that was fine but the drive back joe um texas during the day small town texas it's a lot different than small town Texas at night. So I uh, took his truck, his Ford F one hundred and fifty, and drove from San Marcos to, um, Oh gosh, uh mineral. I have to look up the, the little tiny town again, but, uh, in, in right outside of Austin, Texas and Joe, there were streets that had no lights. There were half of these dark Texas roads had no lights. A deer. I'm not making this up. A deer raced out in front of me as I was driving the truck. And I, Uh, you know, I'm an animal person It would have eaten me up alive. Had I hit that deer, I I passed an old school Texaco, Joe, and I'm not talking about a Texaco that like, you know, has pumps and whatnot. I'm talking about that old school Texaco that it it has like the, the old, like wooden building. I passed one of those on the way there. Like it was, it was a bit of an unnerving drive going back at night, but, uh, made it back. And then of course, faced three delays trying to get out of Austin back to Florida. So yeah, a bit of an eventful weekend, but hey, uh, you only live once, right? So you, you got to kind of experience the,
0: uh, the gamut of things. Small towns in general during the day are like, usually like, you know, depending on where you are, they're very picturesque. It's like serene. And then at night, it's like first 10 minutes of a horror movie, you know, like. I, <laughs> I, I was trying not
1: to say that, but yes, that's you hit the nail on the head there. Actually, really quick. The town is Dripping Springs, Texas, for anyone who is familiar okay. And one other thing, Joe, I do want to say this before we start taping. Um, I know you don't get a chance to get out and cover uh, as many games as I do, but mm-hmm. uh, we actually do have great listeners. So I want to shout out Hunter Shuler, uh, who follows myself and follows the site on Twitter. He is at Hunter Shuler on Twitter. Uh, did not get a chance to meet up with Hunter, but Hunter actually messaged me, DM me uh, as I got to the stadium and actually hit up our, our, our good buddy, Kev Chardello, who covers Texas State wanted to uh to meet up but unfortunately the timing didn't work out but wanted to say that he is a, a big fan of the coverage of uh the podcast so yeah uh do want to shout out hunter because joe that is like what the fourth or fifth time i'd say that i've run to someone just on a uh, and not even an fiu game day you know but a visiting game day that said hey you know appreciate the site love what you guys do so on and so forth so wanted to pass that message along shout out to a uh, hunter makes us
0: feel all warm and fuzzy inside for sure it hasn't happened, but I'm still waiting on that one person in Portland, Oregon. That's just really into like middle Tennessee football for some reason. It hasn't happened yet, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, all right. Let's start with UTSA and army uh, ended in overtime. UTSA wins this one, 41 to Second straight OT game for the roadrunners. Let me start here. I was impressed with the composure with which Frank Harris played in this game uh, Threw for three touchdowns with 359 yards through the air. Uh, this Army team really brought the pressure all day. He did get sacked four times, including twice by the All-American Andre Carter. But again, that's just kind of how um, Army plays. And it doesn't help when your tackles are probably the least experienced of their uh, offensive bunch and specifically their offensive line. I know they switched out their right tackle a couple times to try to get a better matchup on Carter. Um, But way better day from Sakari Franklin as well. 10 grabs for 122 yards and two touchdowns there. Uh, Josh Cephas also had 10 catches for 112 yards in that one. So um, yeah, on the offensive side of the ball and I'll, I'll hold my thoughts on the defense for uh, for, for a little bit later, but um, yeah. Overall, Eric, what do you think of UTSA and the way they played in a close game up in uh, up in West Point here,
1: Joe? Really quick, and yeah, I'll ask you this, and you can be quick and toss it back to me. But
0: you weren't surprised at at how tight this game was, were you? No, no, it, no. I'm not surprised that it was a close game. I am surprised at some of the things that happened within this game. Like, I'm surprised at how it played out. I guess that's the easier way to say it. Um, and, and I guess I'll just I'll just say. I expected UTSA's defense to play better, specifically the secondary. I was very surprised that Army had, what, 206 yards through the air their most in 15 years um, since they run the triple option so much like that was. I was surprised at how this game played out and the amount of big plays that Army was able to break off through the year. That's that's where the surprise came for me.
1: Okay, that I I would say that is absolutely fair. And I uh, we may have conflicting numbers. The number I've got here, Joe, is 304 yards through the air, which makes it even more astounding, considering, as you mentioned, the Army offense is one that you'd expect those numbers on the ground, definitely not through the air. But I guess the reason why I say I'm not too surprised is regardless of whether it is through the air or on the ground, it is so hard to prepare for that kind of offense. I know it's cliche. You hear it said all the time, but it's really a challenge to prepare for that kind of offense once a year. And especially when it's not your first game of the year, right? Because you have all offseason to kind of say, all right, we're going to prepare for this one unique defense. And then this one unique offense. And all right, we'll go back to doing what we normally do. Joe, we kind of saw something similar last year when FAU went to oh, I almost said FE with the Florida Atlantic when FAU went to air force. And I mean, yeah you can account for the the altitude up there but they got completely worked from opening snap pretty much in a game that was much more of a blowout than this one and the only reason i referenced that game is they had a lot a, a lot of passing guards at least more than air force typically would so in that sense i want to say i wasn't surprised but what i was really impressed by joe uh, and you know I'll, I'll i'll end it on this point but i'm i'm going to take a little while here is We don't, in my opinion, we don't give Frank Harris enough love for the quarterback that he is. I know I said it last year when Bailey Zappi won the uh, offensive player of the year and and all, you know, was considered the the best quarterback in CUSA, and and rightfully so. I mean, you know, you don't set a, a national record or multiple national records and not be considered that. But I felt like Frank Harris got buried under the radar because he's considered that air quotes, dual threat guy. Right. But you look at this numbers in a game where his team went and down by two scores, 32 of 45 for three fifty nine and three scores. Joe, that just shows me that if UTSA can get that version of Frank Harris, and I'm sure that Jeff Trailer and company, they might not necessarily want to have to throw 45 times. You might want to feature Trillion Smith and Brendan Brady a little bit more so that you don't have to throw as much. But with that being said, if Frank Harris is, for lack of a better word, that level of passer which i've believed he is it it just wasn't necessarily on display as much with you know sincere mccormick that's going to be a problem for the rest of this conference as you mentioned sakari franklin josh Asifus, those guys both go over 100 yards to corey and clark as well uh almost at 100 yards so i guess that's my biggest takeaway is yes the utsa defense they did struggle but i'm always going to be a little bit on the on the you know I guess, skeptical or optimistic side. I, mean, I shouldn't say skeptical, the optimistic side in terms of defense when um, you have a, you're playing that type of offense. But just the fact that Frank Harris was able to do that, in my mind, that was, was huge.
0: Yeah, I mean, first of all, your numbers on the passing yardage are correct. I was looking at uh, something else in my notes. Army had 304 passing yards in this game, which is their most since 2007. So back up your point about Frank Harris. Yes, he is phenomenal. Right now, especially just playing as like, you know, you can call him a dual threat. He is extremely athletic, but like even just hanging there in the pocket and just kind of sidestepping the pressure that these teams these last couple of weeks have brought uh, against him. He still just had just some insane accuracy on a couple of those balls that he had to. um, I think it was both Sakari Franklin's touchdowns, actually Um, just these incredibly placed balls in the corner of the end zone right there where they just, it was the only place where the receiver could get them and the army defender in that instance just had no shot. Those throws were spectacular. So uh Frank Harris is, is I think is the best quarterback in CUSA uh, right now. Um I'm personally a little concerned about the uh, UTSA defense, Um, but they have time to get better. It, it was just surprising to see armies, uh, passing offense and um i believe their their main passing quarterbacks cade ballard um he played fantastic so ups to them i think they'll have a great year despite starting 0-2. two all right for this next section we're bringing in another guest like we did last week it is mr sam dotton he is the staff writer for middle tennessee athletics um sam thank you so much for coming on and excited to dive into what happened out there in fort collins this week
2: well thank you guys so much for having me i'm excited to dive into it as well it's been a Interesting two weeks for those of us in Murfreesboro, for sure. Yeah, you know, let's, let's talk about that. For
0: those that don't know, you do a weekly column every week where you kind of just dive into, you know, the, the setting of Middle Tennessee football and, and what's happening within the program. And in your column this week, um, you talk quite a bit about how the mood had changed so much from uh, last week to this week um, and how there's just a different energy in the building. Tell us a little bit about that. What's What's the mood like with Middle Tennessee football right now?
2: Well, you know, I think for, for me, from just my observations, it's just uh, the team lost a lot of confidence after losing at James Madison and particularly losing the way they did where the offense really never got rolling. Uh, the defense was out in the field for so long that they started giving up some big chunk plays and obviously the final scoreline almost tells the story in itself of the 44 to seven loss. And it, ju- it just sort of felt like the team needed to find, uh, some positive momentum. Um, there was a couple of things where, you know, particularly the offensive line looked really, uh, Young, which is what they were, and it needed some improvement in that game. And everything that they needed to get fixed got fixed this week at Colorado State. And so you really just around the program, it seems like they have some confidence that whatever they were working towards this offseason, that they have some proof of the pudding now, that they, they know that what they were trying to do can work. And now it's just a matter of executing and sustaining that the rest of the way. So I guess what was the pep
0: talk of the game plan like for the defense? Obviously, that was a huge part of this uh, of this victory, which I'm sure Eric will will have some more specific questions about. But uh, was there anything different in how they game plan for Colorado State and their offense? And and maybe that led to
2: how this uh, how this team performed on Saturday? Well, there's definitely some familiarity with what Colorado State was trying to do because uh, Middle Tennessee this year under Mitch Stewart is running a very heavy air raid scheme. As, as in, it's, it's very much closer to maybe what the Mike Leach type air raid is going to be just because of the type of coach that Coach Stewart is and sort of his background. I, I jokingly say that he is uh, two degrees removed from Hal Mummy himself because he learned under uh, his head coach at Valdosta State when he was a quarterback who learned under Hal Mummy. Um, Colorado state is one degree removed from Hal mommy, because there's his son, Matt is their offensive coordinator. So I think there was a lot of familiarity with the, the type of stuff that Colorado state was going to run. But on top of that, Colorado state had a very young offensive line. Uh, there was a couple different transfers from, I think Nevada starting on there. They, they lost their starting tackle to injury, uh, this week during practice, which is not something that they would have known, but they, they knew that that was an area of weakness for the team. And that was something they're going to have to take advantage of. And they certainly took advantage of it. Got nine sacks this week. Tied a program record for that in a single game. Last time that happened was in 2007 against Arkansas State, I believe. So really dominant performance. I think what was exciting for me about that performance was the fact that it wasn't the names you'd suspect. Jordan Ferguson, Zalen Woods, some of the more veteran guys on that group. Really racking up the numbers. It was guys like Glendarius Dunnigan who got two and a half sacks to lead the team. Marley Cook. Young sophomore defensive tackle got to Christian and a transfer linebacker from Towson, got to. So they really spread the wealth around and it had a good game plan to attack with the usual Scott Schaefer blend of blitzing. Uh, it was pretty effective as well. On the offensive side of the ball, uh, run game was pretty
0: established by uh, Frank Peasant. He finished with 93 yards. Obviously, that's been a huge goal for Coach Stock, as he's uh, as he said many times. What would you think of that phase of the game?
2: I was really impressed with it. I, I think that was the first time since I've been here. You know, I was here first time last season that I've really seen, you know, middle have a true, you know, RB1 or they were they were really leaning on him to, to move the ball up the field and they're generating holes for them. You know, some of that was Frank was bouncing off some tackles and doing his power running game, which was, it was sort of his specialty in that running back room, but it, it, he had some space to work with and getting those four to five yard chunks on first and second down, set him up with some manageable third downs to keep the, keep the ball moving. And in the tempo offense, that middle runs, that, that was a big deal. And that was something that they really struggled with last year was getting in longer first and second down situations, forcing long third downs. And that's why the third down conversion rate was so low for the offense last year. You know, Seven for 17 is not an amazing percentage, but it's, at one point it was seven for 11. So it was more a second half regression, I guess you would say, and also sort of some, some clock killing. They were trying to run some clock a little bit, which affected things. But really productive overall, and I, I was, I'm excited to see Frank break out. I think he's a guy that's – he's only sophomore by eligibility, and so he's somebody that could be a really impactful player at middle for a really long time. What does it mean
0: for this team and this program to have this kind of win under their belt with the uh, hardest parts of their schedule obviously still, uh, still to come in the next few weeks here?
2: I mean, it was huge. I mean, I think a lot of people talking about the team preseason really thought that you know if, if we go – if the team goes 2-2 two and two, – in this opening stretch with games against James Madison, Colorado State, Tennessee State, who Middle plays this week, and then at Miami at the end of the month, I think most people think at Miami is going to be a really tough task. But if we could, if they could split the first two games on the road and then win this uh, game against Tennessee State this weekend, they set themselves up for success down the road with the season, with all of conference play in front of them. So you know the first game was not pretty at all, but the second game you know got that goal accomplished. And so I think that there's a lot of positive momentum ahead. And, and if the offense can keep improving and the defense can keep producing, you know, there's really no reason to doubt this team could be successful the rest of the way. Yeah, we'll certainly
0: see. You know, Eric, I think, uh, you know, speaking for for us, I think there's a lot of people who would be, you know, definitely happy to see MTSU be a little more competitive and play the way that they did in this Colorado State game on a consistent basis.
2: Oh, absolutely. It's just been, uh, it was definitely a weird week after that week at James Madison. I think Labor Day had something to do with that too. But having a team that that you got some confidence in and that has shown on the field what they can be, at least gives you something to strive for the rest of the way and and something for you to sell to other people when you're talking about this team as someone to watch out for the rest of the way. Yeah,
1: Joe, and I'll kind of piggyback off of, Where you left off there, again, if you're just joining us, we are joined by Middle Tennessee State writer Sam Dowden. Sam, I uh, first off want to ask you a very nerdy writer question. This is probably something that only the three of us on this call really care about. And to our audience, I want to apologize in advance Uh, in your column, which, again, you can find at GoBlueRaiders.com. Can't recommend it enough. Sam does a great job this weekly column. Uh, Excellent lead, by the way. But you mentioned that uh, you crumple up a couple ideas and they ended up in your waste paper basket. Uh, Mm -hmm. Sam, is this a metaphorical waste paper basket or do you actually still have a waste paper basket? I guess the image of a writer just jotting down ideas and just throwing them in the waste paper basket is something that it, it, it warms my heart. But I was wondering if that's metaphorical or if that's actual. Uh, that
2: lead was definitely metaphorical, but I do have a <laughs> waste paper basket in my office. And that's what led me to writing that lead um, is I was, I was, I was sitting there and I was trying to think of a couple different ways to, to start that column. And then, you know, I had some ideas before I came to the office that afternoon. Uh, I work on the soccer stat crew here at middle as well. And we had a woman's soccer game against Vanderbilt later that night. So I was running up against sort of a, a self-imposed deadline and needed, needed to they had a couple things that didn't work, and I saw the waste paperbacks get down there, and I was like, well, I might as well write about that and then write a little bit about what uh, Mike Polly, who's our offensive line coach, told me when I walked in. So I didn't literally, wasn't literally writing down those ideas, but I did have a few in my head that were thrown by the wayside when it just wasn't working out in the lead lead writing process for sure. Uh, again, to our audience, I apologize. I know only the three of us on this call care about that. But uh, when I read that, I
1: was like, yeah, I, I, I know I've been there before, but I got to ask if that was metaphorical or uh, actual. I figure it was metaphorical, but I had to get that one out of the way. Sam, let me uh, piggyback off Joe's question and kind of go into the running back situation. As you mentioned, uh, Frank Pizan had a really nice day and we've had Rick Stockstill on this podcast, I believe twice. I know I've asked him. Uh, at various points, it feels like oh, over the past four or five years about his run game, specifically from the running backs. Um, you talked about it a little bit, but I, I want to kind of further on this a little bit. Notice there was 22 carries from Frank and I believe the next closest back had six carries. Um, Darius Bracey's, I believe that was. That seems to be a shift, at least over the past. I don't know. I mean, in the time you've been with middle of the past year and, and even going back before your time, it feels as if they've tried to work multiple backs into the running game. Uh, w- was there maybe a you know more decisive effort to just say, hey, we're just going to ride at one guy and see what happens?
2: Well, I think Frank's developed in a lot of ways that that made him that that type of player. Too. I remember talking to Mitch Stewart for a feature I did on Frank before the James Madison game about, um, you know, sort of his development and what he's seen from him since he's coming to the program this past winter. And I think I posed the question something along the lines of, you know, how important is it to have like a power back in an air raid scheme and that different look it gives you. And, you know, as football coaches often do, when you ask them a question, they pivot in an entirely new direction. (laughs) And he talked all about, you know, how athletic Frank was and how good a pass catcher he was and how good he was in pass blocking and how they could use him in a lot of different ways. And I think Frank's development and then sort of all those categories has Given the coaching staff a, a, a hand that they trust and all sorts of things they asked the running backs to do in that scheme that they maybe didn't have in the past. Um, sort of my read on the running back room last year is they had a lot of guys who had tools, but maybe didn't have all the tools together that you want. A guy like Brad Anderson was a really good receiving back, a good scat back, maybe wasn't the best in pass protection just because of his size. Yeah, guys like Martel Petaway, who was a good all-around back, but didn't really have like, any elite sort of skill that made him stand out. And, you know, Frank's a guy that, that's been in the program, I think it's his third year now, and, and has shown development every single way. And he's right, and Coach Drew was right, he's a great athlete. He, he can do a lot of those things. I don't really think of him receiving back, but he, he's done good things receiving-wise for him. He had two receptions over the weekend. And, you know, he, he's great in pass protection when they need him there. And I think the fact that he's able to do all sorts of those things, as well as get those big chunk games with his power game, has made him somebody that they trust a lot. And I, I'm I'm interested to see if that sticks throughout the season. I, I think Darius Bracey's another guy we wanna watch out for. Hasn't had a great first two games, but he showed a lot during camp that I think makes him potentially a pretty exciting player if he gets out into some space. So but those two have clearly been the, the favorites early on. We've seen a little bit of a very sparrow as well. But Frank's definitely uh, a big character for the this team's success in the next two, three, four seasons, even.
1: Sam, I want to ask you about Chase Cunningham a little bit, and I, I really hope getting a perspective like yours, one that's close to the program, can kind of you know help our audience a little bit. Because I know for me, and I promise there's a question in here, just forgive the, uh, the editorial a little bit, but it, I was a little bit confused when they made the transition away from Asher O'Hara to Chase Cunningham. Uh, of course, last year they had Bailey Hockman, and he ended up leaving the program, and they, they had to turn to Chase Cunningham. I guess the reason I was confused, Sam, was because, it, the, the, essentially the reason that Rick Stockstill said he wanted to transition away from Asher was to kind of be a little more traditional on offense and, you know, it can work uh, some more players. In. And then of course you, you get chase Cunningham, which in my mind felt kind of a resemblance to that, that prior offense. So the, the question here I'm asking you, Sam is what is the feeling within the program around chase Cunningham and, you know, really kind of his development as a passer? What kind of quarterback does he really see himself as despite, despite being a, a little bit undersized?
2: I think that the biggest thing with Chase when when you talk to his, his teammates and the coaches around him is his leadership ability. You know, Chase is a guy that started in the middle program as a walk-on quarterback and he's a guy that that that's grinded his way up, you know, has bided his time, has put in the work in the off season. You saw him putting in the work, you know, recovering from an ACL tear just to get back to the point where he's even available to start this year. And that that's endeared him to a lot of people and endeared him to a lot of respect. I mean, I, I know that the, the the team you know gave him a standing ovation when he was announced as the starter uh, when when Bailey left the program last year and this that's just the type of guy he is he's a guy that the team can rally around and then as far as his physical traits as a quarterback I, I think he's really accurate in the short to mid range passing game I and mean, we saw it this past weekend when he was 31 for 39 you know 79 completion percentage but when he's playing his best he, he's really good at hitting those short to mid range routes that the offense under Brent Deerman last year and now under Mitch Stewart. Like, like to run a lot of. And on top of that, he I think this is where you're getting to where he's sort of similar to Asher. Chase has some mobility. He's got the ability to run his own read. He can get out of the pocket if the play breaks down and try to make something happen. But I think he, first and foremost, his game is going to be sort of more that short passing game, and I think that's probably what Coach Stockso was alluding to a little bit more, is that Chase is a pretty accurate passer in that sense, and, and he's going to look to pass first rather than run straight ahead, which from my understanding was a little bit maybe of the critique of Asher's play style when he was here.
1: Sam, want to, you know, kick it to the defensive side of the ball here. And as you mentioned, the nine sacks tied a tie to program record. Two-part question for you. One, um, how much of that may have been, you know, the fact that a guy like Jordan Ferguson gets so much attention on the defensive line, of course, him being one of the, uh, top defensive linemen in all the Conference USA. And then uh, give us a little bit on some of the guys who contributed. You know, as you mentioned, Quindarius, Dunnigan, Christian Dixon, and Marley Cook are those names that we should be keeping an eye on going forward
2: in Conference USA play. Well, I mean, there's no question that having a guy like Jordan Ferguson on one side of the line re- requires a lot of attention and that can open up some opportunities for some other guys. I think what we're it stands out to me so much about that room. If, if you're watching the game, you know for a prolonged period of time, is how quickly they rotate guys in. I mean, there's a lot of times where you look up and Jordan's not even on the field, which a guy of his caliber you think would be playing almost every single snap. But he, he probably plays closer to fifty or sixty percent, if I had to guess, just based off of my observations. I haven't done the math on that yet, but they run about eight deep in a given game out there. And they're pretty confident in both the first and second team. And from watching them in practice, the the first and second team are are, are pretty close in efficiency. I I don't think there's a whole lot of separation between the two units. And that opens up opportunities for some of the the younger guys in the room to to really show out. And it helps when you have a guy like Chacarius Wyatt, who's a team captain that's technically on the the second team unit for the defensive line. But we know when I was talking to Quindarius after the game, you know, he, he got his first collegiate sack as part of that two and a half sacks. You talked about how they have so many different looks that they can bring the guys. They got some guys of speed on the outside, which I think is really Mark this game, and guys like Marley Cook, who was a state champion power lifter at Mississippi in, Mississippi in high school. Um, he had he's an incredible power rusher in the middle that, that causes a lot teams a lot of problems. And having sort of the, those contrasting styles gives you a lot of different looks that the team has to deal with. And you got a couple guys like Ferg that can do both. And that, that, with all those guys coming in and being fresh the entire game, it's a lot for an offensive line to handle.
1: Two more for you, Sam. We'll get you out of here. Middle Tennessee defensive backfield over the past few years, you know, headed up by guys, standouts like Reed Blankenship and Greg Great. Uh, just talk about how the defensive backfield is coming along a little bit this year. Obviously, you know, having to replace stars like that isn't easy. It's just talk about the DBs a little bit.
2: Well, I think that's certainly been the, the biggest question mark for the defensive staff heading into the year was how well some of the guys back there were going to handle a life without Reed Blankenship and Greg Gray. And also a guy like Quincy Riley, who was our uh, lead of the team in interceptions last year. He's now uh, playing at Louisville and, and losing all three of those guys in one offseason is a lot of production to replace for sure. Um, so far, though, I think outside of maybe a couple of really long pass plays, they, they've held their own. It helps when you have a defensive line like we have that, that help uh, alleviate some of the pressure on them. They don't maybe have to the guard quite as long. But it's a lot of names that have played a lot, but maybe not in starting roles all the time. Corners like Corian Patterson and Jalen Jackson are getting a chance to really be on the outside every single play when maybe they were rotating out last year. Um, a guy like Trey Flewellen, who's been... a Really big team leader uh, since he, he's come in for, from, I believe, Houston Baptist is where he came in from. Um, he's getting a chance to start out safety. Diedrich Stanley sort of rotating between nickel and safety a little bit. There's a lot of guys that have been a part of what the defense has been trying to do. They're just now in roles that they're maybe not quite used to. And so some of that chemistry and communication needs to gel a little bit. And I think one thing Rick Stocksle mentioned after James Madison is that their eyes weren't really in the right spot all the time just because they weren't used to playing with one another. But it appeared that that got cleaned up a lot better uh, this past weekend. So I'm hopeful going forward that that group is only going to grow because they've obviously shown a lot of talent to get on the field as early as they have in their careers. And as they get more playing time with each other, I suspect that some of those miscommunication issues that plague them in James Madison will get cleaned up as things go on.
1: Last one here for you, Sam. Again, listeners of our podcast know we like to end things on a bit of a fun note with our guests. So uh, to bring our listeners behind the curtain a little bit, Sam and I were talking before we started taping and he mentioned that, you know, he was at North Carolina during the last years of the Larry Fedora era. So Sam, would it be feared if I were to say that you were in college from roughly 2014, 2015 to 2018?
2: Uh, it, yeah. So 2015 would have been the fall of my freshman year. So yeah, 2015 through 2019 is about when I was in college.
1: So that's a perfect segue into our next question, Sam. Uh, and this is actually going to be a pretty fun one because I think of all uh, the guests we've had on Joe, Sam is going to be the most recent graduate. So this one should be pretty fun. Uh, mm. What was Sam listening to in college? What was bumping through the speakers during your uh, college years, which were you know not that long ago?
2: Uh, you know, the chain smokers were huge when I was in college. That was probably sure. like the, the, the biggest like modern pop thing I was listening to on the regular. But but I, I'm a pretty old soul when it comes to my music tastes. It was a lot of Billy Joel, um, when I was in college, a lot of Jimmy Buffett, both those come from my parents, a lot of Aerosmith. That one more comes from just my personal tastes than anything. Um, but th- those three were probably on the biggest rotation. You know, sometimes you maybe work a little country in there every once in a while, but not too often. But yeah, mostly if you, if you go through my car radio, it was a lot of, you know, the CDs I have in there right now, it's, it's, two Billy Joel CDs. I got two Arizona CDs, a Jimmy Buffett CD and an Eagle CD. And I think that's pretty consistent to what my, my, my college music taste was at the time.
1: Joe, I will say this really quick before I toss it back to you. Uh, as someone who finished grad school in early 2017, or actually late 2016, technically got, got the, the, the degree in early 2017, uh, going to grad school in Chicago, um, no bad choices there by Sam, but uh, he knows this. And I know, you know, this as a fellow music lover, uh, you could not avoid the chain smokers during that era. I mean, as someone who lived in downtown mm-hmm. Chicago, you just heard the chain smokers in every bar or every uh, facility,
0: every establishment. Is that a, is that fair, Joe? Yes. I mean, <laughs> yeah, they were like <laughs> they were they were a a fever you couldn't shake. Let's let's say that. <laughs> Uh, for better or worse, um, Sam, thank you so much for hopping on and giving your insights into this Blue Raider football program. Uh, if you're not following them on Twitter, you should be. It's at S-J-D-O-U-G-H-T-O-N. Again, Sam Dowden is the staff writer for Middle Tennessee Athletics and provides a lot of great content about the football program. Sam, again, can't thank you enough. And uh, we'll we'll try to bring you back on real soon. How's that Sam?
2: Oh, that sounds fantastic, guys. I had a great time. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course,
0: man. Have a great rest of your day. Let's move on now to a game. We have less reason to celebrate That's Charlotte's 56-21 loss to Maryland uh, at home there. Unfortunately, another opponent has one of the better offensive days of their career against Charlotte. Uh, Talia Tagovailoa threw four touchdowns, had nearly 400 yards through the air, and he also ran one in. Uh, Xavier Williams got the start at quarterback for Charlotte. He was 19-35 of for 191 yards and two touchdowns. We saw a little bit... Bit of Trexler Ivy as well. 49ers trying a few different things as it looks like Chris Reynolds is still hurt. And, uh, Eric, I mean, simply put, the pressure continues to build for Will Healy.
1: Yeah. um I don't want to be too hard on Charlotte, Joe, because quite frankly, uh, and I'm, you know, I feel comfortable enough after four years or now going on five that I can speak for you here. I don't think either of us expected Charlotte to win this game. Um, I guess it's tough, man, because 0-3, as you mentioned, the pressure is is kind of building a bit. Um, This is kind of my two cents, and I'm going to go big picture because, again, there's not really too much that that I think you can glean from this game. I think if you are a Charlotte fan, you probably are looking at this Saturday versus Georgia State. And then the rest of the CUSA schedule. And then you're really kind of making an assessment as to how you're feeling about, you know, Will Healy uh, entering what will be the final year of his contract, uh, the year five, as they enter the American. Because, <laughs> Joe, I mean, I'll, I'll do it to you this way. I'll, I'll, I'll do it in the, force of a que- in the form of a question. I don't know how you feel about these things. I feel like those Power Five games are measuring sticks in a sense. Meaning let's use fau as an example the reason i was so hard on on their loss last week at ohio was because you would think based on where they were with the lane kiffin era if you're a fan speaking of if you're a fan you feel that you you're past competitive games with a mac opponent and i know that may be a little bit unfair considering they're a fellow g5 but once you've won two out of three conference titles you feel like you're past that right um to charlotte and I promise, like, I, I hope I, I this question will make sense once I'm it around here. I don't necessarily know if you can say that. I think for guys like us who cover Conference USA, we like a lot of the pieces they have. Chris Reynolds, Vic Tucker, Elijah uh, Spencer, uh, DeBose, et cetera. I've talked about how, you know, Highsmith, uh, DeLuca, and Gemmel aren't walking through the door. But Joe, would they go seven and six that year under Healy that they made a bowl game? Yes. It, 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 you'd think, all right, that's something to build off of, but they didn't reach that, that. It's not like they've had two, three, four bowl, you know, consecutive bowl years, like an FIU, for example. And granted, you could say the bottom completely fell out of that program, but I can understand if you were a FIU fan, you say, okay, we went through straight bowl games. You're thinking the, or you went to three straight bowl games, excuse me. You're, you're thinking the next, you know, gradual progression is like being the top of the conference. They didn't quite reach that with Charlotte for a myriad of reasons, COVID and, and whatever. So all that for this question, Joe, do you really think it's fair to kind of, you know, assess, or or I'll rephrase that Uh, at what point in this season, like what would have to happen for you to think, all right, we need to take a, a look at our coaching situation entering the American. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. I mean, when you look at the rest of Charlotte's schedule, I mean, I think once they lost to William and Mary, that was the point where folks that seed. Grew a little bit. I mean, for as we know, it's been in some Charlotte fans heads for a minute, but that's where we we saw it take a a significant step with the uh, lost William and Mary. And I didn't expect them to win this game, but I didn't like some of the things I saw. And granted, as we talked about, I think if Chris Reynolds had been hurt in this game. It might have been a little bit closer. But uh, as we know, the main issues with this team are on the defensive side of the ball. Honestly given where they already are i think they got to beat utep at home they obviously have to beat fiu they got to beat rice um and then i honestly i think given where they already are and the level that they've established given injuries and the fact that this defense clearly hasn't progressed as much as we thought it would um i think they need to win four or five games for there to be like a a continuation of the majority of the staff in the next season, if that makes sense. Um, If they go lower than that, then I think that's where the serious conversations start to happen, unfortunately. But um, they have a lot of tough games the next few weeks. Georgia state um, has played really well against two P five opponents in the, in the first two weeks here, I believe. Yeah. Um, then they got South Carolina after that, that's going to be, that's going to be a tough one in, uh, in Columbia. Um, and then as we know, they, they've got UAB on the schedule. They've got, they've got Western on the schedule. They've got, um, they, they've got some teams where, and honestly it could go either way, depending on what MTSU does with these next few weeks and how they continue to improve. And, um, Louisiana tech, they are off on the right foot in my opinion. So that one, could be a close one to end the season but i think they lose to uab i think they've got a tough competition against rice coming up or i'm, I'm sorry i think they've got a tough competition against utep coming up um these next four weeks especially this next month that's where we're going to see what this team is really made of because other than south carolina there's still winnable games for charlotte but they're going to be very tough contests i think you, those are all you know pretty fair points you know i,
1: I apologize to charlotte listeners who came for hardcore analysis of the Maryland game. Cause like I said, I, I, I don't put you this way. If they had lost 21, 20, then, you know, we'd be talking strictly about that game, but the fact that they lost by 35, I don't think that's shocking anybody. So I I'm taking the 10,000 foot view here. So uh, like you said, I, I think it's a fair point. You know, I, I for me personally, I want to see how they fare in conference play and, and specific in specificity, the Georgia state game, but you know, you got some games on that schedule, FIU middle Louisiana tech rice. Uh, those are ones that you think, ideally you think you should have wins so i think that'll kind of be something to keep an eye on and maybe we can go a little bit deeper into some of the things with charlotte you know what's plaguing them as we get to that point but yeah i i don't have anything on them losing to maryland by 35 because quite frankly that, that was expected given you know not having their starting quarterback and some of the deficiencies
0: yeah they in the first half it was tough um tough to move the ball for sure um and it, it got tougher as the game went on, obviously. You know, this this Maryland defense is uh is pretty good. Um, especially when they're playing uh they're punching down, so to speak. But anyway. Next on the docket, we've got FAU beating Southeast Louisiana 42-9. to Uh, Big day, as we expected, for the FAU offense. 631 total yards for the Owls as they take out some frustration from that Ohio loss last weekend. Uh, Three passing touchdowns and 259 yards through the air for Nikosi Perry as he continues a really strong campaign. And, you know, Eric, it's the other side of the coin from what we were just uh, talking about a, a few minutes ago with that Charlotte loss. Since this is a win over an FCS team, you got to take it for what it is. But frankly, it's something that some other teams in FBS are having quite a bit of trouble uh, obtaining this year. When you look at, you know, the way that like Idaho is playing right now, obviously William and Mary against Charlotte. Good step for the FAU offense. And I think they were able to show just how deep they, they are at this point.
1: Yeah, Joe, it's interesting. Uh, Our fellow underdog dynasty brethren, Mr. Kevin Fielder, he also doubles as the publisher of Owls 247, the FAU 247 site. And he tweeted something from that account that made me think uh, in specificity or in, in relation to this game. He said that it was really encouraging. Excuse me. It was really encouraging that FAU won the way they did, given the fact that there was no Johnny Ford, no Evan Anderson, no uh, or limited Jaquan Burton, limited Jamal Edrin, no Jalen Joyner. And I said, you know, to play devil's advocate. uh, Is it really, though, because I feel like this would have this point would have been more. More, you know, profound had they won last week, uh, the week before at Ohio. And Kevin pushed back and said, yeah, he, he did think that that it was. And the reason I mentioned that off the top is, to your point, a lot of FCS teams have played FBS teams really well. And, uh, you know, for our listeners who may not know, Southeastern Louisiana is actually one of the premier uh, FCS teams, I believe they were ranked in the top 25 entering this game. And I, actually, my game prep, I saw that they've been ranked in the top 25 in the FCS for something like 28 straight weeks of, of uh, or at least football weeks,
0: I should say. So uh, they're very strong. good. They made the playoffs last year. Yeah. Yeah. So they're on a go. very good FAMO team. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, there you go. So case in point. So I, I will, you know, give that point that the fact that they won by 33 against a very good FCS team is something that's encouraging. Joe, when I look at this game, I had a chance to watch it back on the flight home from Texas. The FAU running game is picking up in a way that uh, I don't want to say it surprised me. I guess maybe the contributors who Zuberry Mobley coming in rushing for a buck 46 and Larry McCammon running for a buck 25. Anyone who listen to this podcast. No, I had you know Johnny Ford at project is that number one guy. They haven't even gotten any production from the production from him yet. Cause he hasn't played. So that's encouraging in my mind, if they can get a stable of backs going, really tag and get that rotation going? Uh, LeJonte Wester, maybe I don't want to say the forgotten man in the offense just last year. He led the team in receptions and receiving yards, but you know, he, he, if he can emerge a little bit, Joe, cause he's a bit of a slot guy. When you look at Edrin, and Jaquan Burton and Tony Johnson; those are like your bigger, more typical receivers. But if Le'Jounte Wester can get going in the slot, that'll be a huge help for Nikosi Perry. And keep an eye on Eddie Williams. Eddie Williams is a name, Joe, that uh, I think come week six, week seven, week eight, if his play continues, he had a, I want to see at eleven or twelve tackles against Ohio, had a sack and a handful of tackles against Southeastern Louisiana. If his play continues in the way it, it, it has to start the year, that's a name that you're going to talk about amongst those great CUSA linebacker. So all in all, a good win for FAU, definitely considering the fact that uh, they were down some players and they've got a big task, as we'll talk about later in this podcast when you take on UCF.
0: Two and one, certainly not a bad place to be if you're Willie Taggart's team, especially if you already have a win over a conference opponent since they beat Charlotte in week zero. So uh, just keep moving forward for them. And as you said, we'll, we'll talk about that UCF game in a couple of minutes here. Uh, for now, let's talk about Liberty beating UAB 21-14 to 14 in Virginia, there. Tough day for a UAB team that fumbled four times. And if you have an offense that relies so much on that ground and pound attack and, and winning the time of possession battle, as we've seen in years past, you got to be able to hold on to the ball and finish drives. Uh, Dwayne McBride tallied his ninth career 100 yard rushing game with 20 carries for 177 yards and a touchdown in that phase. And then Jermaine Brown jr. Added some nice depth with 91 yards and a touchdown on 17 carries, but, uh, Liberty's defense allowed UAB to gain just 107 yards in the second half. So, uh, gotta be able to play a complete game. If you're Bryant Vincent's team and Eric, it really seemed like Liberty, uh, corrected a lot of their issues from that Southern Miss loss and did a decent job themselves of running the ball. Seems like that's going to be a big key for them this year as they move away from the things they did with Malik Willis last year. Um, But Liberty overcame a lot of penalties, which makes it even more frustrating if you're a UAB fan here.
1: I know that there was a lot of talk around this game saying that, Hey, Liberty doesn't look like the same Liberty of old. They don't have Malik Willis. This game should be a win. Uh, allow me to tap into my inner, you know, uh, uh, independent coverage here. Mm-hmm. As you know, Joe, I've covered Liberty, I believe, over the past three years. I've covered four games of theirs, three bowl games, and the FIU uh, road game to start to the 2020 season. So I've seen a lot of this team, probably outside of FIU, the team I've seen the most is Liberty. Joe, they still have a lot of contributors. Noah Frith at tight end, Demario Douglas, CJ Yarborough. Those are guys who... You know, were I mean, I don't want to say all stars. because They don't have a uh, you know year end conference team for the independents, but they were very good players uh, on the offensive side. Then defensively, they still have a lot of their guys: Trayshawn Clark, Darrell Johnson, Javon Scruggs. Those are all guys that I remember again covering this team uh, or covering the game at, at at Liberty to open the 2020 season. Those are guys that I was spotlighting as veterans who contributed two years ago. So uh, I, I hope that UAB fans aren't. <sighs> Too down on the fact that they lost to Liberty because again, I know some of the talk was all right. You know, especially given the way they beat Alabama A and M, that they should be able to beat a Liberty team that you know doesn't have Malik Willis. But it, it, I, I think, especially given what the strength of UAB's team is, which is still the run game until proven otherwise. Although Brian Vince is the head coach, and you think things may open up a little bit more, the run game is still the strength. And given what uh, Liberty's strength was, which is defense, even though they gave up. You know, still get 241 yards. It wasn't like they shut down the run game. Still a lot of talented defensive players on that side. I guess the one thing that I would be interested to keep an eye on going forward is this UAB offense as they face formidable opponents. We talked about it in the beginning of the year. And and, and really quick, I guess one other thing I should say, you, you can't lose the fumbles, the, uh, the you know three fumbles. We four overall, one from Starling Thomas. You know, I was not an offensive player, but on offense, three, three fumbles. That didn't help their case. But so, you know, that played a significant factor in the loss. But, uh, Joe, when you look at the pass game, the one big play to Trey Shropshire and that's it. Any concern at all on, on your end that, you know, Dylan Hopkins went 10 to 15 for a buck 14 or does all the things that I, I said there about the Liberty defense kind of ring true? And you say, hey, they're, they're, they're facing a, a, a pretty, if not formidable for whatever you consider formidable, a veteran group that's played a lot of football together.
0: Yeah, I think veteran is fair. Like you said, a lot of key pieces returning on the Dylan Hopkins question. I'm not super concerned. Um, Like you said, uh, this team relies on the ground game a lot. And if you look back at some of the success that Dylan Hopkins has had throwing the ball in this UAB offense, it's come off of play action. So um, essentially the success of their passing game depends on the success of their running game. And the running game is is relatively successful right now is through these first few weeks of the season. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be too concerned about that because those opportunities are always going to be open downfield. And, you know, like you said, you're going to play some uh, defensive back course in uh, CUSA uh, later this year that, frankly, are not as good as as Liberty has been the last three, four years in in that regard. So, um, those opportunities are still gonna be there for Dylan Hopkins. I'm not super worried about it. The key for them is just to continue to establish the run game and make opposing defenses respect it so that when ultimately they, you know, forget that <laughs> that the the passing attack is is in their um arsenal, Trey Shopshire is already in the end zone. So we'll see. Um, All right, let's move on to Texas State and FIU. Eric, you were at this game, as we mentioned. Um, For me, I think my my biggest positive note on FIU's performance in this one is the interior defense is is getting better. Um, There's definitely marked signs of improvement there. Uh, Most of Texas' state's scores in this one came on these long, explosive plays. Uh, 67-yard passing touchdown, 52-yard passing score, 25-yard rushing score, which obviously that's not good, but I think it's... it shows that that Texas state was respecting FIU's, you know, front seven in the middle of that defense. Um, But Eric, I want, I want to start here with you. You mentioned in um, some of the stuff you've done in the early part of this week here about FIU's offensive line, having to learn on the fly. And obviously there's, you know, inexperience and a lack of depth there, but uh, what was your take on how they performed in this game? And and how do they get, uh, how do they go up from here?
1: Yeah, Joe, I think this may have been, you know, for lack of a better phrase, the wake-up call that maybe some in the FIU fan base needed, and because I think they, you know, things ended so well against Bryant and Grayson. James came in there was able to get some things offensively. For all of the FIU fans who felt like, all right, we just need a quarterback, and specifically <laughs> to bring inside FIU a little bit. A lot of the chatter has been, we just need Grayson James. That was kind of you know toned down a little bit. And by no means is this any critique of Grayson. I think Grayson's a talented guy, I mean, you don't come out of the state of Texas and you know play the way that he did and not have talent but listen i don't care who you are no quarterback is going to be able to fare as as well as they as they they want to by an offensive line that joe they're not bad they're just really young and really inexperienced and <laughs> You know, I had a, a member of the, uh, you know, FIU staff come to me and say, yeah, you know, we played X amount of walk ons uh, last last night or, or during the game. Uh, I had that number as three. Uh, they added as four. So maybe they've got one that I, I didn't account for. But when you look at their, the, the, the 10 offensive linemen that played, you have two first time starters, a true freshman, Joe, who as a former O-lineman, you'll appreciate this. The kid played guard, started at guard week one and then had to start at center <laughs> two days ago so you know or three days ago so that is not easy for anyone let alone uh, a true freshman and then Julius Pierce uh, another offensive lineman first time starter you got Lindell Hudson who's supposed to be their, you know the best or I shouldn't say supposed to be he is the the top offensive lineman for FIU he's been hampered with a back throughout all of camp and then as I mentioned you know you played guys like Sam Hill and Bo Blanchard who are who are are walk-ons and Not only is, you know, Bo Blanchard, if memory serves me correct, a a walk on Joe. He was born, not to make us feel old, he was born in April of 2004. So you do the math there, he's a few months removed of his 18th birthday. (laughs) And now you're asking him to step in there and play against a Texas State defensive line that anyone who knows anything about Jake Spavita, they've been heavy in the portal over the past two years. Guys who are 23, 24 years old. That is not an easy task. So that, and the reason I went so long in the offensive line, really you know told the story for this game Grayson James goes 30 of 47 for 196 Hayden Carlson comes on the last drive goes five and nine for 55 yards Grayson has a two picks including a pick six uh really kind of a you know a meaningless pick six at the end didn't really play a factor in the game the game was sewn up by that point in time but they couldn't get anything going downfield. Joe I'm sure when you take a look at Tyrese Chambers numbers 10 for 72 that just goes to show you every single way they tried to work Tyrese the ball we've got 15 targets uh, they were not getting him downfield. He had one highly contested one-on-one ball that he uh, caught downfield for 26 yards. So I guess you can take that away. My quick math says that's nine for 56. So they weren't getting anything downfield. The the defense is still, you know, uh, the 3-4 defense and Jobon DeWitt, still a work in progress as well. So Donovan Manuel has 14 tackles. Gathan Bernadette has 12, but they allow a buck 95 to Calvin Hill, the 226 yards, the most that they've had uh, I want to say it was in a decade at Texas State and Calvin Hill with a career high, Buck 95. It wasn't even Lane Hatcher, you know, the, the veteran quarterback who played at Arkansas State, who really kind of set the table was Calvin Hill. Uh, you look at Hatcher's numbers, he had three touchdowns, but, you know, some of those were on uh, a couple of plays at another. Uh, stop me if you've heard this before. A true freshman uh, in Hezekiah Massey's, who Earned a starting role, but it's getting it's someone you're gonna have to take those lumps with a true freshman. Uh, one play he recovers a fumble. Another play, you know, he he he's right there in a pass breakup, and then he, that comes with that with you know allowing a couple pick sixes. So I just feel like these are going to be the lumps that come with a young team that you know they're going to learn on the fly, and I think we'll have a better assessment of this team come you know week five, week six, week seven, and they're going to have some winnable games coming up with New Mexico State and others, but uh, against a, a veteran Texas State team, it's too much. Uh, it was a two too tough of an ass to think that they'd be able to come in here and and really be
0: competitive immediately all solid points I mean obviously Texas State is not a not a great team Um, but to your point when you play a veteran defense like that when you've played so little football at least at the collegiate level it's definitely tough to you know kind of establish establish yourself as you know establish dominance against that kind of defense I guess all right with Louisiana Tech beating Stephen F. Austin fifty-two to seventeen, Sonny Cumbie picks up his first win as the coach of the Bulldogs. Uh, Eric, as you noted, the run game was good in this one. They ran it for three hundred yards as a team on forty-two attempts. Um, the thing that I noticed here was Parker McNeil playing the majority of the game at quarterback. We talked last week about uh, Downing's tough day at Missouri, so McNeil gets um, you know gets the vote of confidence here. He finished. 11 of 23 for 197 yards for three touchdowns and one interception in this game. And defensively, they played pretty well too. Uh, they forced three turnovers, which regardless of the opponent, that's a great step for that group. Uh, The Stephen F Austin team, they're, they're definitely not bad. They were a top 10 team in the FCS to open the season. They took that tough loss to Jacksonville state, but you know, now looking at the way this Louisiana tech team played, um, Coming off of that Missouri loss, you got to be happy with uh, the fact that you were able to put up 50 in, you know, in any game.
1: Yeah, Joe. Listen, I stand corrected. You asked me last week uh, about the quarterback situation at Tech. And I, I said, of course, you know, neither was cover of the team, but I said that I, I wasn't reading too much into the Missouri game, considering the fact that it was Missouri. But yeah, they did go with Parker McNeil, and his numbers weren't phenomenal. You know, I, I, again, um, 11-23 for 197 because of the three touchdowns. What I think, Joe, was the most interesting point of this game for me, Marquise Crosby, 16 carries for a buck 96, all in the first half, Joe. That is the most rushing yards by a Tech running back since, uh, I believe it was 2014. I just wrote that in my three things. We learned about Conference USA, so forgive me if I have the exact year wrong, but... That kind of rushing output, Joe. If they can get that going, I'm not saying that Tech is going to be a bowl team. I want to make this clear right now. But I think as the Sunny Cumby offense is implemented, if they're not, if they don't have to be as reliant on the pass game and everything clicking there, and they can get a solid, you know, running back going, specifically Marquise Crosby, I think that could make them competitive. As they again, another team that is rebuilding like FIU, they could be competitive down the stretch and and you know make some things tough for some teams. So the big takeaway for me was almost 200 yards rushing. Yes, I get it, an FCS opponent, but if they can get that, you know, even, even half of that going as they, you know, get the sunny Cumbie air raid offense going, it could be interesting.
0: We both noted that uh, good things are on the horizon for Louisiana Tech, the way that they're continuing to develop that talent there. So we'll see if that continues in the next week when we do that preview. Um, let's continue to wrap up the recap here uh, North Texas beat Texas southern 59 to 27 this week four touchdowns for Austin Ani. a good recovery performance from him after their previous game against SMU when he really kind of struggled to get anything going um, and you know North Texas as was expected running game was strong too a lot of good chunk plays for them in that regard 348 yards was the total for the uh the rush, rushing yardage in this one and uh, it also helped their case that texas southern racked up 10 penalties for 119 yards in this game so eric what'd you think of this performance from the Mean green
1: yeah joe so you talk about this game for north texas and this kind of reminds me of what my analysis of them was after their week one win against utep i am not expecting austin ani to go in there and throw four touchdowns every game right but the numbers 11 to twenty, efficient. You know, 218 yards, again, the four touchdowns, not an expectation. I just really, really think, Joe, and I, and I, I want to leave you some room to opine on this as well. If they can get I'm, – I'm sorry for being repetitive of what I said week one, I, and I always mispronounce his name, and I just heard it on the broadcast. Ao Adehi, I believe that's pronouncing the I, I gotta go through their game notes. Uh and you know, Taylor Bryan does a great job there. Uh, the SID for North Texas. I need to go through their game notes, get that pronunciation. But he has 10 carries for a buck 35 and one touchdown. Oscar Adway, the third, 17 carries for 85 yards and two touchdowns. Joe, if they can get that run game to be what it was last year, doesn't have to be three thousand yards, but just that type of efficiency. And this allow Austin Ani to kind of do his thing as needed. I, I really think, Joe, and I, I feel like someone amongst our Conference USA Roundtable picked North Texas as a sleeper, and that's not a, a dry humor. I, I think someone did. It wasn't me. Um, mm-hmm. But they they could be a factor. And again, I know someone would say, all right, Texas Southern, another FCS team. But it's just the fact that anyone who's, you know, Joe, you've done this podcast with me for a while. I'm mm-hmm. big on having an, an identity. I think teams that don't have identities, whether it's an offensive identity or a defensive identity, they tend to struggle. When they're trying to do it like six different ways to win games, I I don't think that's always, um, I don't think that's always feasible at this level. I I think at this level of play, you got to have an offensive identity or a defensive identity that works for you to stick with it. And if this can be it for North Texas, I, I think there really could be a, you know, a team that we didn't consider them as a, as a conference title contender to begin the year, but, a run game and solid defense will carry regardless.
0: Yeah, solid points. Like North Texas is one of those teams where you know what they're going to do. They have the capacity to do it well. It's just, are they going to do it consistently? In this game and in the win against UTEP, they absolutely did. <clears throat> it was last week against SMU when they got away from that defensive intensity that they brought in the, the games that they actually won. And it also obviously doesn't help their case that Tanner Mordecai is Tanner Mordecai. But um, with this game, they were running the ball really, really well. That's their offensive identity, like you said. And if they can, you know, continue to do that and keep the momentum on their side against, you know, their conference late, then they absolutely could be a sleeper in this league. We'll see. All right, and then we have Rice beating McNeese State, fifty-two to ten. A desperately needed performance from the Rice Owls here. T.J. McMahon accounts for five touchdowns. Brad Rosner gets two TD grabs for himself. And the Rice defense recovered three fumbles. So, again, with the kind of offseason that Rice had, this was so needed for their morale and so needed for their momentum because they have a brutal four-game stretch coming up here.
1: Joe, I've harped on that quarterback situation a ton. So, if I did take the time to harp on it, I got to... Give him credit. T.J. McMahon gets the start. He goes 20-29 for 274 and four touchdowns. Uh, again, you know, I'm not expecting that from Rice every week, but if they can get consistent quarterback play, at least I think you have uh, opportunity to make a fair assessment on Mike Bloomgren this year, in my mind, and the Rice program and the Rice offense, and we see how things flourish as the passing game has opened up for them. Ari Broussard, Juma Ataviano. Uriah West, those are all names from Rice that we've heard for quite a few years now. Bruce Broussard and, and Juma, uh, combining for over 100 yards on the ground. How about this guy, Joe? Seventh year in, not almost a seventh year in Conference USA, seventh year in college football. Bradley Rosner, people forget that Brad Rosner came out of high school in 2015. He's had a few medical red shirts, spent three years in JUCO, got banged up one year there, and then, of course, missed the greater greater part of the last two years outside of one game with injuries he comes back with three grabs for a buck oh one and two touchdowns he has always been that deep threat joe i mean remember back it feels like a while ago we're talking about him and austin trammell right as the two guys there at rice on the outside at 6'5", 205. nice to see him come back with his most receiving yards in almost three years or three seasons at least uh get that going there and then defense great performance gabe taylor with the pick six of course the uh, younger brother of Sean Taylor, guys to see him doing his thing. And uh, they ended up in that performance as far as five sacks as well. So that was nice to see from the Owl. So all, all in all, uh, for everything that I said about them, you know, in their first game, again, against USC one, that I felt like you couldn't expect too much. Uh, it was nice to see them come back and really win a game in a way that I felt they should have similar to, florida atlantic
0: yeah this next week is going to be the kind of the true test of, of where they are it always kind of bugs me when teams schedule that that p5 game and that fcs game back to back i mean i get that they don't have a choice in a lot of instances but we're not going to really know where this rice team is until after next week but for now um definitely what they wanted to do offensively so that's great and it, it doesn't hurt to Turn in that kind of defensive day uh, for your confidence against an FCS opponent either, especially when you turn a turnover into points and the way that that pick six uh, transpired there, obviously. All right, let's uh, wrap the recap up with the Ravalry game. UTEP beating New Mexico State 20 to 13. Miners get their first victory of the year. They're one and two now. Uh, big day for Ronald Awat, 115 yards and a touchdown on 21 carries. Decent day through the air for Gavin Hardison as well Uh, for UTEP. This was just one of those games where if it had not gone this way, it would probably be time to get a little bit closer to the panic button. (laughs) But but they get the win against a bad opponent, despite it being by one uh, one score. Happy for UTEP, but the guy to watch the fumbles. That was a huge issue for them in this game.
1: Yeah, the fumbles are certainly a factor. You cannot turn the ball over and win games. We all know that, Joe. I I want to ask you this, and our good buddy Steve Kapowitz from ESPN El Paso. Of course, we had Adrian Bratis on earlier. His uh, not his counterpart, is uh, his cohort, Steve Kaplowitz, there at the station, ESPN Thousand El Paso, wrote a column about the. UTEP offense essentially saying I said you said ESPN 1000 ESPN 600 sorry it just clicked in my head Joe he wrote a column that's too them, many numbers sorry. too many exactly right Joe he wrote a column saying that for UTEP to essentially have any semblance of reaching the potential that they felt they could you know entering this year they' they have to execute better offensively and I think he hit the nail on the head this defense while yes they they don't have Breon Hayward and unfortunately it doesn't look like we're going to have him. Uh, they still have a lot of talented pieces around them. Right. But Joe, I mean, we talked about it from even media day. I, I asked Dana Dimmel the question about, hey, you know, you had Kyle Loxley for a few years and now, you know, Gavin's come in and, and really taken over as the starter. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the kid he beat out. Oh, man. Um, the kid from Texas, three star recruit. Oh, boy. It'll come back to me at a later point in time. Anyhow, I mentioned that, you know, hey, he really kind of earned the respect of this locker room by winning out that battle and and, and being the guy. And Dana Dimmel said he has all the confidence in the world in Gavin to take that next step as a passer. And, and, you know, he has full autonomy of the offense. Numerous people have talked about he has one of the strongest arms you'll ever see. Joe, you know, 20 points against a New Mexico State team that ain't that good. Uh, listen, a win is a win. And as many coaches have told me, it is hard to win a football game. I I, I do think kind of piggybacking off of the theme I've talked about as far as where are you as, a, where are you as a, at a program, Where are you as a program? We'll try that again and just slow down and talk. Um, They're better than a seven point victory over New Mexico state. So your thoughts
0: on that? I don't disagree. Um, To your point, when you're winless and coming into a game like that, you just got to get away with the victory, especially with, when it's a rivalry game. But you know, in the grand scheme of things, I don't know that we're really in a point where at the end of the day, anything except the amount of, you know, wins compared to losses, is is really going to matter for UTEP. I know we picked them as, you know, a potential sleeper. I, I don't, based on what I've seen so far, I am walking that back a little bit, if that makes sense. It, to your point, you can't beat, uh, you can't barely beat New Mexico State and expect to be in contention for a conference title. Granted, there's definitely still time. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this UTEP, they're not playing terribly. It's just a few too many bad mistakes like losing fumbles that's a bad mistake obviously you know letting uh missing guys that are open which gavin hardison has done a few times this year dropping passes which is also his receivers have done this year that those are the games those are the mistakes rather that are going to cost you games so i think they're making a few too many of those but th- they're also doing some some good things i mean it was tough to live up to what they did last year for sure I understand Your what you're
1: button. saying by saying it's tough to live up to what they did last year, but I, for this program anyway. Yeah.
0: Well, here's fair.
1: Here's what, here's here's what we'll say. Your point is probably more right than mine. And maybe I'm being a little tough because they are replacing Jacob Kong and Justin Garrett. I guess I'd heard so much about guys like Tyron Smith and Ray Flores. And I do think those guys have the potential to be solid players. Maybe it's a little bit, uh, a little bit, you know, much to expect them to be Jacob Cowing and, you know, Justin Garrett, as opposed to maybe guys who are emerging and trying to fill those roles. And maybe that plays a factor in some of the offensive, offensive inefficiency as well.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, based on what we've seen from Jacob Cowling at Arizona this year, it's it's a wonder that he didn't end up at a uh, at a P5 program to, to begin with, even even one like Arizona that doesn't have much of a uh, football tradition, let's say. Um, but yeah, there's definitely some offensive pieces missing from what they were able to do last year. And as we have talked about, uh, you got injuries uh, stacking up in the, in the front seven and the defensive line in the linebacking room, for sure. Um, Breon Hayward's still not playing, which is ridiculous, but, um, yeah, that, that obviously makes things harder for guys like praise on and, uh, Taylor on the, on the other end of that defensive line. So, um, just running into a few problems, but at the end of the day, you got to be able to play mistake free football and they're not doing that right now. All right, let's jump into week three previews uh, to start off with probably the um, for me anyway, the most anticipated game of the week. You have Indiana hosting Western Kentucky on the Big Ten Network, a Hoosiers favored by six and a half uh, as of Monday. Line could change, but that kicks off at noon Eastern. Um, you know, it's funny. I was um, I did a guest spot for off tackle Empire um, earlier in Well, I guess it was like a week and a half ago, but anyway, I was talking about this game and I said that I think this is COSA's best chance to beat a Big Ten team, um, given their schedule against that conference this year. But essentially, I'm not super impressed with the way that Indiana is playing right now. They have a young quarterback who, well... And he's young youngish. Um, doesn't have a ton of playing time. Came over from Missouri, playing at uh, playing at Indiana right now. He, I, I'm not super impressed with what he's done so far. Uh, this is a team that that had a really bad first half against FCS Idaho last week. Um, before they got it together, but then when you look at the way Western's playing right now, you know the only thing that really gives me pause is you know hopefully they're able to kind of uh, keep the momentum that they've uh, gotten from starting two and zero after a bye week this week. Hopefully, they're able to get back in the swing of things and do what they've done against the Austin Peay and Hawaii so far. But I think Western's going to get the upset win here.
1: No, Joe. I mean, in my mind, you look at Indiana, and you talk about their quarterback situation. Yeah, no Michael Penix Jr. I, I thought Michael Penix was, quite frankly, uh, you know, one of the better quarterbacks in that league, but I, I'm biased. He's from Tampa, Tampa Tech High. Shout out to Oregon Road. But nevertheless, um, yeah, I, I do think... In my mind, yes, it is interesting that Indiana, of course, has not had their bye week yet. And yes, it is two, they are two and oh, but as you mentioned, by no means have they been a really strong two and zero team. I would be interested to see Joe, the Western Kentucky offense seem to be clicking on all cylinders, getting close to it. Maybe not say all cylinders, might be a little early to say take that assessment, but really close to what it could be. In that win over Hawaii. Now, you take the week off, and one hand, you can make some adjustments and things of that nature, but maybe on another hand, it, it's nice to keep the rhythm going. I think that'll be interesting, Joe. I think we'll know from Western Kentucky the first few drives or so. I think we will know whether or not they can pull off the upset. If, if they're a little bit slow getting into things, kind of like they were against Austin P., Indiana's gonna win this game. Uh, at the end of the day, I do think that Tyson Helton will have his team ready to go. Anyone who listens to this podcast know that I think Tyson Helton is one of the best coaches in CUSA. And uh, I think that'll show out
0: on game day. So give me the tops. Then at 3 p.m. Eastern in Vegas, UNLV hosting North Texas. UNLV favored by three points heading into this game. Again, I think we're going to get a CUSA upset here. UNLV has has played pretty well uh, so far. Um, They opened the season with uh, a win against Idaho state. And then in week two, they lost uh, by one score to California, who is not a a great program right now. Um, But I like what this you, what this UNT team is doing, as we talked about, if they establish the run, take care of the ball and just keep the momentum on their side, then I think they get the upset here.
1: Joe, I am torn on this game because quite frankly, I didn't think UNLV deserved to be a favorite entering this game. I mean, UNLV is a program. I'll give Marcus Arroyo credit. He seemingly has him in the right direction coming off of the uh Tony Sanchez era, in which, you know, was nothing short of an utter failure, but I mm-hmm. digress. Mm-hmm. Um, I I just don't think yeah, Doug Brumfield did some things, It uh, looked pretty good, definitely against Idaho State. But I don't know. I mean, I, maybe it's the CUSA bias in me. I just think North Texas is a, a more complete team or at least a more consistent team. I mean, yeah, they, they've, they've struggled defensively over the past few years. But, you have struggled overall over the past few years. So I, I'm taking North Texas and I yeah, it'll be an upset by, according to no, no pun intended. Vegas is odds, but uh,
0: I don't think it should be one. Right. This UNLV team is not um, they're not terrible. They're much better than they have been. But um, certainly a little overrated, in my opinion, given the fact that their one win so far has been against Idaho State, who have been probably the one bad team in the big sky <laughs> over the last couple of years. But anyway, uh, UAB hosting Georgia Southern um, UAB minus 12. That one kicks off at three thirty eastern. Um, I think this one's on stadium. I, I, I believe North Texas. I'm not sure where I'm not sure where the broadcast info for North Texas is I'll. I'll Put that in after the fact. Um, but UAB hosting Georgia Southern, I believe, on stadium. Um, this one's gonna be fascinating because as we saw Georgia Southern, of course, coming off that huge win against Nebraska last week, the one that ultimately ended Scott Frost's tenure there. Um, but this UAB team, they've they've got to clean up the fumbles. They've they've gotta keep that Georgia Southern offense off the field. Kyle Vantries is, is doing some great things. I mean, it's it's crazy to think. Given how long Georgia Southern has run the triple option, but they threw the ball like almost sixty times last week. That was that was wild. Um, but anyway, this Georgia Southern team is very good. So I don't, you know, I, it's 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 tough to say because that they impressed me so much in that game, even if it was against a, a very mediocre Nebraska team. Um, man, I'm going to say UAB wins, but there is there will not be a twelve point difference. How about that?
1: Yeah, Joe, I think that's fair. And really quick, yeah, that game is on stadium. The North Texas UNLV game <laughs> is on the Mountain West Network. And oh, God. Uh, okay. and uh, how about this, Joe? The Silver State Sports and Entertainment Network uh, for you folks in the, I'm assuming, the greater Las Vegas area, because I don't know where the hell you'll
0: get that anywhere else outside of the silver state. So anyhow, back to CUSA fans, Mountain West fans do not want to hear you complain about this media deal anymore. I'll just say that. <laughs> I'm not saying CUSA's is great, but at least it's not the Mountain West.
1: <laughs> right. You're not searching for, or, or you're not, you know, the, uh, <laughs> FIU New Mexico state. You have to find that one on, um, Oh, flow sports that you have to pay 29.99, As I believe Joe had to pay uh, a few weeks back for literally one game. You don't even get a free trial. Nevertheless hate it nevertheless um sorry flow sports audience I i'm not <laughs> uh, clearly i'm the more diplomatic one here we go all right georgia southern uab uh short and sweet joe um georgia southern obviously riding high <laughs> obviously riding high a huge win for them i i i do think this game is going to be very close i do think uab is going to win because quite frankly i do think that just all in all They are the it's listen, I don't don't want to take anything away from Georgia Southern's upset. It's just I mean, it's a little quick for the turnaround. And that's not to say that, you know, listen, we talked to Clay Helton uh, on the Sunbelt podcast. We certainly know that he's a good coach because we're coaching family. But, man, I'm going to buy into the fact that UAB is a better program overall than, you know, listen, sorry, Sunbelt fans. Sorry, Georgia Southern fans. If, if they get this one to go three and O then a lot needs to be said about that program and maybe what their Sunbelt, you know, hopes are, but give me
0: UAB. And then we got Georgia state hosting Charlotte at 7. PM Eastern on ESPN plus Georgia state favored by 19 and a half heading into this game. Um, personally, I think the Panthers are going to pull this one out. I, I watched uh, Darren Granger play against North Carolina last week, and he turned in one of the better performances I've ever seen him give as a college quarterback i think he is uh playing with some real real heart right now i mean if you look at the way that uh, georgia state's season so far has shaken out they open with a 35 14 loss to south carolina where they played a really good first half just ran into some you know some a, a couple i'm never gonna blame a loss on solely officials had some tough calls go against them in the second half that ultimately i think just really We're were the start of the end there. Um, And then North Carolina, um, 35, 28 was that game. And they they played tough until the very end, especially Granger. So um, I think you can expect to see big things from him in this game as Georgia State goes on to victory.
1: Joe will get upset with me because my ADD is kicking in. Joe, the Silver State Sports Entertainment Network is a subsidiary of the Fox uh, affiliate in Vegas. It's not even available in all of Clark County. All right, rant over. Um, going back to, to Georgia State and Charlotte, you, I think you get the nail on the head, right? You know, Darren Granger is someone who I've talked about on this podcast, a really unique player. He, he won the job, or, or I shouldn't say necessarily won. He took over for, for Quad Brown and kind of beat him out. You know, we thought Cornelius Quad Brown was going to be the future of Georgia State football, and Darren Granger's held on that job for the past few years. Really one of the, the more uh, – he, he's not one of the best quarterbacks in the Sun Belt, Joe – But maybe one of the more underappreciated. He's just one of those steady guys. And and this is my assessment of him. So I hope, you know, Darren Granger fans don't take offense to this, but he's just one of those steady guys that all in all is probably the best option for your team. You know, maybe what Chris Reynolds used to be considered, right? You know, Mm -hmm. except Chris Reynolds has kind of grown and and progressed um, as a quarterback. And speaking of Chris Reynolds, we'll have to see if we see him here. This week, because in my mind, that's going to make the difference. Joe, um, I do think Darren Granger is a better quarterback than either of the backups. For sure, that's James Foster or Xavier Williams. Although Xavier Williams has feared you know, adequate and probably looks like the, the true QB2 there at Charlotte, uh, I don't think he's better than Darren Granger. So in my mind, if Charlotte gets Chris Reynolds back, I think they have a fighting shot to win. But if they
0: don't, give me Georgia State. MTSU hosts Tennessee State, another Nashville-area school. 7 p.m. Eastern on ESPN plus there. Um, I think MTSU wins this one. And it's I think it's going to be cool to see Eddie George, um, longtime Titans and, and Ohio State running back coaching uh, the Tennessee State Tigers. It's it's cool to see him in that job. Um, but ultimately, I, I think MTSU, even if they didn't turn in the kind of performance that they did against Colorado State last week, I'd still be taking them. Um, frankly, th- there's too much talent here for them to give up this kind of loss. I'm not saying it's not possible, but they really should not be putting themselves in a position where that would be the case. And I don't think they will.
1: Yeah, Joe, really quick. I think there are uh, if any Tennessee state audiences listen to this, they might take offense. You call them a Nashville area school. They're probably more or they are more Nashville than, than you know, middle Tennessee. Nevertheless, uh, Fair yeah, enough. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm sorry. I'm just giving my partner a hard time. No, I, I, I do think that as we heard Sam Dotton talk about, you know, Blue Raiders are really progressing right now. Certainly had a a bounce back win over Colorado State. And as you mentioned, it'll be cool to see Eddie George. And they certainly are going to come there and lay down. They played Jackson State tough. But I do think Middle Tennessee has a chance to build on some of the things that really plagued them in week one. And they correct in week two and they'll get the victory.
0: Here's the big one, Eric. FAU against UCF and Boca. CBS Sports Network, 730 Eastern. UCF minus nine. Heading into this one um, for FAU playing really well playing a balanced game right now uh obviously the depth is an issue so ucf could take advantage of that there um ucf of course coming off a loss to louisville last week um i don't remember (sighs) you don't remember (laughs) fair enough um but uh, yeah, so it's interesting. I think they're going to definitely get uh, Plumley going a little bit more on the UCF side. Um, we'll see if FAU's uh, front seven can respond to that. Um, ultimately, you know, I, I don't think UCF is going to stay in this rut uh, for too long just because Plumlee is just a freak athlete, um, at least as far as their offense is concerned. But anyway, um, I think this one's going to be relatively high scoring. I, I think both teams. Clearly have some some issues on the defensive side of the ball here and there. Um, But there's there's two offensives, two offenses that have been pretty darn prolific uh, through these first few weeks. And um, I think we're in for a really entertaining game in the Sunshine State.
1: Yours truly Celeste, changed change his Twitter profile picture. I didn't forget, Joe. I just wanted to get through some early week writing. Uh, oh, okay. So for those do that. that
0: don't know, for those that don't know, we, since our respective alma maters played on Friday, we made a friendly wager where the loser uh, would have to change their Twitter avi for a week um, to, the, uh, to a picture of the opposing team's mascot chosen by the winner. So you got a great little old-timey photo of Louis the card to throw up there. Uh, That is correct. Nevertheless.
1: Uh, Okay. So here's the thing for FAU, Joe. We talked about it in my breakdown of their win over Southeastern Louisiana. It's going to be the def. It does appear that they are getting some of those guys back, Joe, but I think, uh, this guy didn't make my top 15 players or you know, top 35. I had him in the top 15 players in conference USA for nothing. Evan Anderson is not going to go, Joe. He was in a, uh, I couldn't tell if it was like a cast or just like a wrap on his leg. A FAU fan got a picture of that and posted on Twitter, but he is not available. They're hoping to have him back in a few weeks. I think Isaiah Bowser and John Rice Plumlee are going to be able to take care, are going to be able to take advantage. Excuse me of that uh, of that hole in their defensive line. And this is no slide on FAU. The fact that they were able to win the, that game in the way they did without the contributions of the guys I mentioned earlier is key. Um, it's going to take you know a full effort. Nikosi Perry like. I mentioned this earlier. Kosi Perry is a guy who starts career at Miami. He is not just you know a a a, a regular quarterback or just you know a a guy they have out there. He certainly is a talent, and if he gets hot, you can keep an eye on FAU. But in the end, I do think UCF will bounce back and win this game, primarily because I think the UCF fan base might melt down if they lose this game.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, no slide against UCF fans, but. I mean, if it's if it's anything similar to what I saw from Nebraska fans last week, it that would be entertaining. But I, I think UCF wins this game for sure. Um, I think I said that, but anyway, Rice hosts Louisiana seven thirty, also on ESPN Plus. Uh, Cajuns favored by twelve in this one. Uh, I think the Cajuns win this one. Um, for those that are curious about what Louisiana's done so far, uh, they. Beats uh southeast Louisiana in the opening week and then they hosted Eastern Michigan last week, which they ended up winning 49 to 21, but they did not look like themselves at all in that first half. And it's a wonder that they were able to turn around as much as they did in the second half uh, with Michael DeSormu at the helm there. Uh de DeSormu. I don't know how you talk in, you guys talk in Louisiana anymore. But anyway, yeah, I, I think Louisiana gets this win. Um Rice definitely showed some nice improvement in that McNeese state game, but this is a whole other level of competition.
1: Yes, this certainly is a whole different level of competition going to make it, again, short and sweet. I want to see some progression from the Rice offense. Can they get a pass game going against one of the top teams in all the group of five football? In the end, I do not think it's enough to win despite being at
0: home. giving me Louisiana clemson hosting louisiana tech acc network eight o'clock eastern clemson minus 34 heading into this game they are the number five team in the nation currently for a reason uh despite some of the rather entertaining quarterback conversation around that team the last few weeks um you know unfortunately for louisiana tech i think this is just another one of those games to just you know throw, throw some stuff out there try some things see where you are against uh one of one of the premier teams in college football. Unfortunately for them, um, Clemson wins this one. Uh, I, I don't think we're going to spend too much time talking about this on next week's podcast. But uh, yeah, that's that's happening.
1: Everything you said there rings true. We just want to see some more progression, see them build on last week, and you know, don't have a complete game where you just kind of fall apart and nothing's going right. I think that will be good for the excuse me, that will be good for the uh,
0: young and growing Louisiana Tech team, specifically the offense. Give me Clemson. All right. And then on the Longhorn Network, uh, eight o'clock Eastern on Saturday, number 21, Texas, hosting UTSA. Eric, prior to that game against Alabama this past weekend for Texas, I really had it in my head that UTSA was going to walk into Austin and and get an upset victory. That being said, this Longhorn team, even though they lost to, to Alabama last week, it was by one point. Um they're they're looking much better than i thought they would and i'm i'm the biggest uh texas longhorn criticizer in the state of oregon let's say <laughs> um but i think utsa is doing some really good things but they they've got to play better in the past defense against uh against texas and of course they got to be ready for Bijan robinson who's, who's very very good
1: Joe, uh, super quick story, and for the the UTSA audience that's listening, I did pick UTSA at the beginning of the year to win this game. I still think that they have a really good shot to win this game without Quinn Ewers at quarterback, but uh, I I am maybe waffling on that pick a little bit. Give you a quick story. I am leaving Austin, Texas to get back home. Uh, This is now, what, 24 hours after the game. There is a gentleman in the airport at the airport bar, uh, probably in his... Early to mid-30s, uh, Texas hat, Texas shirt. The, they show highlights of the game-winning kick. And my man through tears, says, Texas GD fight. He was hurt. Uh, the reason I mention that, Joe, is I wonder for this team, Steve Sarkeesian going to have the task of getting this group back up to play against, quote-unquote, an inferior opponent after you pushed Alabama to the brink. I still think it's going to be close. Uh, but I'm leaning towards Texas after seeing the performance against Alabama. I did not expect them to look
0: that good. If UTSA does pull this off, the parties that will be thrown, I would like to be on UTSA's campus for that. It, I, well, I, it would be fun. I'd be the weird 30-year-old going to college parties. Let's not get into that. But... UTSA, I, I think if they do manage to pull this off, it's going to be an incredible achievement, and uh, they should celebrate accordingly. Uh, New Mexico hosting UTEP, uh, UTEP playing yet another um, yet another opponent from the what is what is New Mexico? What is their nickname? I want to say the Turquoise State, but that's not right. That's just like the kind of jewelry they wear. Anyway, um, the Lobos, UTEP minus three in this game. I think they get it done. Um, New Mexico. They had a good start against uh, Boise state last week. Um, I watched a little bit of that game. Um, and for those curious, they opened the season with a 41 to zero win against Maine. Um, but you know, this new Mexico team's not great. Um, I think they are another uh, instance of kind of a mountain West bottom dweller right now, even with the, you know, the issues that Boise state had, they figured it out later. Once uh, Hank Bachmeyer realized they were actually playing. Um, I think UTEP wins this, you know, I, I think it's going to be a test of, you know, can they continue the momentum that they established with the victory over New Mexico state last week? You know, Albuquerque is not the, the toughest place to play, but anytime you play on the road against, uh, you know, a school that's, um, you know, competing with you for a lot of the same, like uh, West Texas, East New Mexico kids, it, it's important. So I, I think they get the, I think they get a good victory here.
1: Hey, uh, and a lot of fans are listening to this podcast may think I have, you know, play the hindsight game when I correct Joe on these things. Uh, it's not actually the case. Sometimes Joe says these things and I'm just like, I wonder if he overthought that one a little bit. And this is my, <laughs> place, my partner. Uh, Probably, Mexico's yeah. The land of enchantment.
0: Land. Of, uh, I knew it was something okay. like that. I've watched enough Breaking Bad that I should have <laughs> known that. But anyway. But also, I'm like that state
1: nerd who to name all the capitals and all that crap. So, I mean, I, I had an advantage there. Nevertheless, uh, UTEP. Much better program. Uh, As you said, Albuquerque is not always an easy place to play, but for all things that are the hopes of the UTEP season, they need to win this game. So I would like to see some more offensive efficiency, see them clicking specifically Gavin Harrison, clicking with his receivers a little bit more. Give me the
0: minors. Fantastic. And with that, we will wrap up this edition of the Underdog Podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter at J-O-E-H-I-O underscore at Eric C. Henry underscore and for content from the site at Underdog Dynasty, where you can find the criminally underappreciated video of Tim Curry that I posted on Monday afternoon here Um, and come back next week for more uh, USA analysis. We also have a Sunbelt podcast. Check that out. We also have an AAC podcast. Check that out. And um, of course, more G5 content every single day on UnderdogDynasty.com. Happy football watching, everybody. The hell is a silver state sports and entertainment? Ever- oh, sorry.
1: Happy football watching, everybody. <laughs>